ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 is where we're going to be again this morning as we sort of finish up a thought that the Apostle Paul has really began in Ephesians 5. I would even say he began it in Ephesians 4. He began laying the, the, the foundation for some of what he's talking about here. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells believers to walk worthy of their calling. And remember, the, the word worthy does not necessarily mean deserving, but it means uh, consistent with their calling. He tells us as believers to walk consistent with our faith. In Ephesians 5, 1, he tells us to be imitators of God. Later in uh, verses 18 to 21, he, he tells us to be spirit-filled. And really, from that point on, he begins to list what it is to be spirit-filled as a believer and what that would look like in our everyday lives. He, he talks about being spirit-filled with the ministry, within the ministry of our local church. He, he talks about being spirit-filled in, uh, in, in our marriages. And in, in chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, he talks about how to be spirit-filled in your relationship with your parents. And in, in verses 3 and 4, he talks about being spirit-filled in your relationship with your children and those that you raise and help raise. And, and now Paul's going to talk about being spirit-filled in your working relationships. Now you're going to notice when we start reading this passage, many of you have read this before and you already know this, but you're going to notice that this passage does not specifically mention uh, a work environment in, 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 the, in the form of an employee and an employer, but instead it references the relationship that slaves are to have with their masters. Now, in today's political climate, this passage could be seen by some as very controversial. Some even would suggest that this passage condones the practice of slavery, but, but, but in reality, that's, that's really not the case. If you study the, the Word of God, you study, study the full counsel of God's Word, we see that um, the slavery here is acknowledged because it was a tremendous part of the, the political and social environment of that day. Uh, it, was a, it was a tremendously large institution, and it was the reality in the world in which they lived. And so Paul addresses this. He acknowledges it, but he does not condone it at all. In fact, as you uh, just to remind you that the full counsel of God's word teaches us very clearly that in any and every situation that we as believers find ourselves in, we are to conduct ourselves in a way that brings honor and glory to God. If that is uh, in the form of, in that culture, in that day, uh, as someone who was uh, under the bondage of slavery, uh, if that was somebody that was an overseer of, of, of someone that was working for them in that way, uh, they both were uh, to conduct themselves in a way that brought honor and glory to God. It was a common part of the Roman Empire. In fact, historians estimate that during the time that Paul writes the book of Ephesians, that, that about one-third of the people in the Roman Empire served as some form of, served in uh, some form of slavery. Now, some were 
born into it because they were born into a culture uh, that was defeated by the Roman Empire. More times than not, the majority of the people that were uh, in the bondage of slavery in the Roman Empire in those days uh, came from nations who went to war with Rome and tried to fight Rome and some things and they were defeated and so uh, many of the people were forced to serve as a, uh, be servants of the Roman Empire in various ways uh, and sometimes they were uh, horribly mistreated sometimes uh, they were uh, some were treated better than others we'll say that but many of them were horribly mistreated at times uh, some people were born into it some people were uh, found themselves in a culture that had been a nation that had been defeated some of them it was possible to be sold into slavery by their parents or by, by, by family members you remember Joseph was sold into slavery the Old Testament Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and so we know that was that was a, 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 one of the ways someone could find themselves in slavery. And another common way that, that someone could find themselves serving as a slave is if they had a tremendous debt that was owed, uh, they could contract themselves, whether it be for a lifetime or for a short period of time or a, a, you know, commit to a certain period of time, and they would serve uh, as a slave for, uh, for an owner in order to pay off a debt. There were many ways in which this, uh, this was going on, this was a very, very uh, large institution in Roman society of that day. Just to give you a perspective of, of how, uh, how common this was um, and how many people were affected by this, uh, when the Civil War broke out in the United States, there were four million slaves, okay? Uh, and at this point in first century AD in the Roman Empire, there's an estimated 60 million people serving in some form of slavery. And so uh, a lot of people would say, well, Paul mentioning this somehow condones it. But the fact is, historically, the fact that Paul even mentions the ethics and the expectations that God would have for people serving even in this type of institution uh, was a big, big deal. In fact, uh, this was this was not a a, 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 a very uh, favorable position for Paul to have to say, hey, there are certain ways that if you uh, if you are a master of a slave, there are there's a certain code of conduct, and you are not to mistreat them. Uh, you are to treat them uh, in an ethical uh, way that would bring glory to God. This was a big deal. It was a huge uh, institution in the first century, but it was a changing institution. One commentator said that public sentiment was against the harsh treatment of slaves by this time. Many leading orators were beginning to speak, uh, speak out against the, the, the institution of slavery. And this caused many uh, people who owned slaves to free their slaves. And so as Christianity sort of pops up in first century A.D., and as, uh, as New Testament Christianity is, is really popping up here, it's popping up and it's rising up in a real life sort of setting where there is a tension among that institution. Uh, there were uh, slave rebellions that were happening that had failed uh, by this time that caused a lot of, lot of harm and loss of life to both sides. And 
So as Paul's writing about these things, he's, he's writing about them at, at a time uh, uh, where there is this tension that exists, this debate beginning to bubble up. And, and so, uh, so Paul's not sowing seeds of condonement. He is not sowing seeds saying it's okay. But, but in reality, by mentioning this and putting this out here like this, he's sowing the seeds of abolition. Okay? Christianity in its, uh, in its, in its fullness is, uh, it, it speaks against slavery, uh, against human slavery of any kind. Uh, when we understand that the gospel uh, in one respect uh, may not uh, come out and completely condemn it uh, just uh, harshly, but the, the, the content of the gospel, the message of the gospel really dooms it in another way. This is something that uh, another commentator has said. And so you think about the, the principles of Christianity, equality for all, and, uh, the, the, uh, the dignity of, of, of humanity, and uh, the equal work and redeeming love brought to all souls by, the, uh, uh, by, by our Supreme King, King, Lord of Lords. Salvation is available to any and all who would come. To God through faith in Christ, and so I'm thankful not to live in a nation where where that is uh, that is something that is part of our culture. I'm thankful that that is no longer legal in the United States. But a lot of times, people will see this passage and they'll think, "Oh, they're talking about a, a, a time that's long past." This doesn't have anything to do with me. And while the while the uh, the, the practice of these principles is different. What we see in this passage are principles that, uh, that could be applied for all of us who find ourselves in working environments, whether that is as a, a, as a worker or a boss or a supervisor. Many of us are both a worker and a supervisor. Some of us are supervisors that have supervisors above us. And, and, and so we understand the context of the working environment, the working relationships. Because here's the thing. If you are a spirit-filled Christian, then it should be evident in the relationships in your life, your key relationships, your relationships with people at church, the relationship that you have in your marriage, the, the relationship that you have as you interact with parents and or children. And now we see very clearly that it should be evident in how you live in, in your relationships that you have at your work. So let's look here. Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9. The slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling in sincerity, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to uh, please men, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, you will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for your word, and Father, as we look at this passage that can be very challenging for some, Father, I pray that we would not uh, 
we would not skip over the application that is here for each and every believer in Jesus Christ. Fathers, we seek to serve you, to be imitators of Christ, to be spirit-filled. God, may you have glory in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about spirit-filled laborers here, okay? And, and Paul addresses this in two ways in this, this small passage. First, he addresses the workers, the, the, the laborers. If you're going to be a spirit-filled laborer, then, then that involves submitting to authority. It, it, it means submitting to the authority in your life's human authority. It says, obey your human masters with fear in trembling. Workers, if was, we are called to do a job, if God has given you a job, then as long as whatever it is you've been asked to do does not violate the biblical standards of your faith, then you should be willing to do what you're asked to do. That's what he means by be, uh, to obey. Just be ready to respond. When called upon, a spirit-filled worker is ready to respond. Paul says to obey with fear and trembling. Now, today's application of that is this, that we should give our bosses at work the respect they're due. So, so not only should we be willing as a spirit-filled believer in a work environment, not only should we be willing to respond when called upon, but we are willing and ready to respond with a respectful attitude. Paul says, do this in the sincerity of your heart, with a sincere heart as to Christ. Paul says, if your faith is real, if it's sincere, then it's going to be evident in the work that you do. Because whatever your work is, whatever your job is, that is part of your calling of God. That is, a, that is something that God has put in your life to help sustain you and provide for you. And as long as you are in that job, whatever it might be, you are to, to do it with sincerity. You need to see it as not just working for the company, but, but working for Christ. That's why Paul tells the Colossians, which is a companion book to Ephesians. He says a lot of the same things to the Colossians that he says to the Ephesians. But he says this. He says, whatever you do, do it from your heart. As, as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of the inheritance that is from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. He says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for God, not for people. So there's a, there's a matter of submitting to authority. It involves submitting to authority, but it also involves sincerely serving God. Sincerely serving God. Look what he says. He says basically the same thing he says in Colossians 3. He says right here, starting in verse 6 of Ephesians 6. He says, don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. One of the things that we need to realize is that your work in students this would, for you, some of you have jobs, this would include your job, but, but, but many of you, this would include your school environment. You need to see the work you do at school 
not just about pleasing a teacher or getting rewarded because, because you get a good grade and so mom and dad will give you a few extra bucks, but you need to see it as a way to serve God. God has put that in front of you, but in your, in your jobs or your schools or whatever that might be, you have to understand that, that that is part of your mission field. That is a mission field that God has given to you. Now, I've, I've always said that your home is your primary mission field, and I, I still agree with that, but I would tell you that the, the other mission fields that God gives you, it, you know, involve your work environment, involve your school environment when you are students. And so you are you're called, part of what God has, has called you to do is to learn and to grow, but also to serve, to, to honor the name of God. Remember, we're told to do good works so that why the people would see it and they would they would honor your father in heaven. And so we understand that's part of our calling wherever we are. And so we have this mission field of work or, or school if you're a student. And so uh, we have the opportunity to to affect the lives of others that we come in contact with at work and at school, whether it be co-workers or peers, or that be our supervisors and our bosses and our business owners. Here's the deal. If you're not sincere in doing your work, it's going to be difficult for you to influence people to trust in Christ. If you're not sincere, if you're not a good worker, if you're not dependable at your job, then, then why would somebody depend upon your advice when it comes to key life issues about eternity, about salvation, and about faith? And we have to understand that when we are sincere in doing our work, it, it allows us more of an opportunity and more credibility as we seek to influence people to trust Christ. It's hard to witness to somebody at work if you're lazy. It's hard to witness somebody at work if you're the insecure worker that always runs down your boss. If you're the one that, that, that we've talked about that, that, that does not do well with authority and nobody can tell you anything, okay? That is not the attitude that is going to win you uh, favor and influence with people who are needing to walk with God. It's hard to witness to somebody when you're running down your boss, when you're always late, when you have a bad attitude, when you never get your work done, okay? So we need to see our jobs and our school, whatever that is, as a mission field. Here's the thing. Your character is evident in how you work. Now, not everybody's going to be the best worker. You, you may be doing a job that really is not suited for you, and you're trying to do the best you can. In the meantime, while you find a different job that is more suited for you, but your character is evident in the effort that you put in to your work environment. You, you know, if you just do what you're, what, what you're supposed to do only when you think somebody is watching, that does not speak very highly of your character because character is who you are when you think no one is watching. I used to say character is who you are when no one is watching, but, but I sort of changed that because I've realized over the years that somebody's always watching. And if you have a cell phone, somebody's always listening to you because you know they're like the Google spies, all right, the little computer, little bots that listen to everything you say so they know what, uh, what advertisements to send you. 
I mean, I mean, what would it say about who you are if, if everything that you did when you thought no one was watching became visible and became evident? Now, no one is perfect. I'm not saying you are. We all struggle with things. But your character is who you are when you think no one is watching. So that becomes evident in how you work and the effort you put into your work. Whether you realize it or not, each and every one of you that is a believer in Christ, each and every one of you that's been saved by the blood of Jesus, if you are seeking to be a disciple, then you are a full-time minister of the gospel. And so whatever you do for a job is part of your ministry. It's part of your mission field. See, see every week I get up here and preach. This is part of my ministry. This is part of my mission field. And you think, well, that makes sense because you work at a church. And I'm thankful to have this job. But, but what we have to understand is that as a spirit-filled believer, as an imitator of Christ, then, then, then you too, as a believer, you too are a preacher. You, you preach at the construction site that you work on. You preach at your office. You you preach at your factory. You, you preach in, in the cab of whatever truck you might drive. You, you, you preach from a cubicle. Some of you preach from there. That is your that is your uh, opportunity to preach. Some of you you work at home. Whether you get to work from home uh, because your job allows you to be there, or you work at home because you're at home raising a family, and that is hard work. You are preaching as you work. That is your platform to preach from. And so this passage tells us and reminds us that as a believer in Christ, as a believer in Christ, you are an ordained servant of Jesus Christ wherever you go and whatever you do. Paul talks about, uh, he, addresses, he addresses the workers. He's talking to the Indians. But now he's going to start talking to the chiefs. He's going to start talking to the, the bosses and to the bosses of being a spirit-filled boss, a spirit-filled supervisor. That involves sensible supervision. Look at the first part of verse 9. He says, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them. And so, so, so Paul is telling us, uh, he, he, he is reminding us that if, if, if we want our workers to be a certain way, that we as supervisors, we as leaders, need to lead a certain way. Okay, many of you are familiar with the golden rule, do unto others as you have them do unto you. That comes really from Matthew 7. Uh, Matthew 7, 12 says, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. We have to understand uh, that golden rule. And, and when I look at Ephesians 6-9, I see the golden rule with shoes on, okay? This is, this is real-life action. Bosses, business owners, See, here, here's the deal. If you want your employees to respect you, then you need to respect them. If you want them to take their work seriously, then, then you have to take your work seriously. If you want them to be fair to you, then you need to be fair to them. If you want them to support you, then you need to find ways to show your support for them because you are setting the standard. Now, that doesn't mean that every employee, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a spirit-filled 
supervisor, spirit-filled boss, spirit-filled person in charge. That doesn't mean that every employee is just going to fall in line and everything is just going to be angels and roses all the time in the office or out in the shop. That, that's not what it means. But, but we have to understand that, that as, as, as the leaders, if we're not setting the standard of sincerity and kindness and compassion and Christ-like fellowship, who else is going to? Being a spirit-filled leader at work involves sensible supervision. It also involves a sacred significance. Look at the, the, the second part of verse 9. Because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And so what that's, what that's telling us is that the, the, the same God that died for your sins, okay, leaders, uh, that is the same God that died for the sins of those that you are leading in, in the work environment. This could maybe even think about this uh, in relationship in a school environment, teachers and administrators and even uh, teachers in the classroom and how they deal with their students. We have to, we have to understand that, uh, that, that, that these folks that, that work under your leadership are significant to God. They are just as sacred and just as significant in the eyes of God uh, as you are. Let's think about it like this. Imagine you're a supervisor at work, and you notice that a new employee um, shows up on your role. You notice that that new employee has the same last name as the owner of your company. But if the owner of your company has a last name like Smith or Jones or Campbell or something like that, that's a pretty common last name, and so you don't think a whole lot about it. But somewhere after the person kind of begins working, you find out that that indeed is the child, the adult child of the owner of the company. At some point you find out who they really are. And, and, and the question is, number one, would that change how you would treat that person? And the reality is, it probably would. Okay, now you could argue whether or not that's right or wrong, but, but you would probably pay a little extra attention to that new employee. It, it would probably even cause you as a boss or a supervisor to, uh, to do your job with a little more diligence, uh, to be sure that all your I's are dotted and all your T's are crossed and you're following all the regulations, okay? Uh, because you know that that person is, has a direct line to... Uh, to the big boss, and so uh, you want to be sure that uh, whatever information is being relayed back to the big boss uh, is favorable information. You probably would go out of your way to make sure that this new employee has everything that he or she would need to succeed uh, at their job. And I'm not saying that you would necessarily do anything you aren't supposed to do, but you would probably uh, have a little more diligence uh, and pay a little more attention to that particular situation. Why? Why would you do that? Well, because that new employee is the boss's kid. Here, here's the deal. Boss's kid or not, that employee is a person made in the image of God, just like you are. Uh, if he or she is a believer in Christ, then not only is this a fellow human that's made in God's image and likeness, 
But if, if they are a believer in Christ, this person is a, is a brother or sister in Christ. And we have to understand that in God's economy, there are no big shots. In God's economy, there are no little people. In God's economy, everyone is sacred and everyone is significant. Here's the deal. Listen, friends, if you're walking worthy of your calling in Christ, if you're laboring to be an imitator of Christ, if you are spirit-filled and spirit-led, then this is going to be evident. Paul has told us in chapters 5 and 6, this is going to be evident in your relationships at church. It's going to be evident in how you are as a spouse and how you are as a parent and how you are as a child. It is going to be evident in how you are as a worker. And so wherever you go tomorrow, whether it's the paper mill or it's a factory or it's to the ranch or it's to the classroom or the grocery store, to an office building, whatever you do, do it as to the Lord. You, you want to be an imitator of Christ? Then you do it in the everyday relationships at home, at church, at work, and in your 